in your word and exactly what you said and exactly what you meant. And I pray, God, that that would be what happens in this place. I pray that we would all have soft hearts to the truth of your word that we're going to hear. I pray, God, that when we hear truths from your word, that we would be looking to apply them to ourselves, not looking out to everybody else who needs this stuff, God, but would we hear these truths and look at our own lives, and may these be truths that we apply to our own lives and we focus on what you want to teach us. I pray that would be the case this morning, and please do things in our midst that only you can do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so we are in the, in the midst of a verse-by-verse study of the book of 1 Thessalonians. And so the last time we were in 1 Thessalonians, which has been a couple weeks now, we were, we were talking about the responsibilities that the ministers of the church have to the members of the church. And we talked about the responsibilities that the members of the church have to the ministers of the church. And so what we were doing was we were seeing how it is that we're to function together based on the authority structure that God has designed for his church. And so as we continue our study of 1 Thessalonians this morning, what we see in these next couple verses of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 is how those of us in the church are to relate to each other and how we're to function together. So that, that's what we're going to be studying over the course of the next couple weeks. And so, again, the last time we're in 1 Thessalonians, we're talking about church members and how the church ministers are to conduct themselves towards each other. And, at, and, and we finished halfway through verse 13 of chapter 5 last time. And this morning, we're going to be studying how the members of the church are to conduct themselves toward each other as we finish verse 13. We're going to begin to see how the church is to function together amongst ourselves. What should this look like? Because you know what's interesting? I, it, it, though I, I know I'm about to say something that sounds pretty obvious, I, I'm not sure most believers grasp this, but the day that we got saved and the day that we were born again, not only did we enter a relationship with God at that same moment, we also entered into a relationship with everyone else that's been born again. And in the New Testament, the Bible uses these different illustrations and these, these different metaphors to picture that relationship for us. So, for example, in John chapter 15, verses 4 and 5, God likens us to a vineyard. God is the vine, and, and we're the branches of that vine. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, we're likened to a house. We're, we, we are lively stones that comprise a spiritual house, and Jesus is the chief cornerstone. And what God is doing is, is he's trying to get us to get a grasp on what this thing of the church is actually about. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12, God likens us to a body. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12, God likens us to a body. And then in Colossians 1.18, it says that Christ is the head and we're all the different parts of the body, the, the, the eyes, the ears, the hands, and the feet. And as we go through those, you may have picked up on the fact that in all the illustrations, in all these metaphors, Jesus is the source. Jesus is is the key element because what are what are a bunch of branches if they're not connected to a vine what, what are a bunch of stones doing laying around if they're not on a foundation and they're not connected together it's just a pile it's just a pile of rocks what's a what's a body if it doesn't have a head i know that cry <laughs> i've heard that one before so with each of these pictures, God is trying to get us to see our connection with him and our connection with each other. But there's at least one more illustration or, or one more metaphor that God uses to refer to us that, that is very relevant to what we're studying this morning. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, God likens us to a family. And that's what we are. Do you realize that? 
we are brothers and sisters in the same family because we have the same father. And God gave us analogies like that because he knew we could relate to him and really begin to understand what it is that he's describing. We, we, we've all seen a vine with branches. We, we've all seen a house made with bricks or stone. We, we all have a body, so we understand how it's supposed to function together, and we all understand how a family is supposed to function because we all grew up in one. So these are all things that we, that we can relate to, and God goes to the length of using all these metaphors and all these illustrations. I haven't even used them all yet to try to get us to see how it is that we're to relate to God and how it is that we're to relate to each other. So let's just take this thing of, of being a family. If I went around the room right now and I called on different people to just kind of interject as to how would you describe the key ingredients to any ideal family, what would you say? My guess would be is that though there would be some differences, there would probably be some pretty consistent themes that we'd come up with. I'm sure we would all say something about the love in the family. I'm sure we'd talk about the love between a husband and a wife, and we would talk about the love between parents and children, and, and the love between each of the children. All of us would probably agree and, and maybe even say something along the lines of everyone knowing their role and, and pitching in accordingly. But if we really just got down to the bottom line above everything else that we're really hoping for in the family is that it would be a place of peace. You don't get much of that out there in the world, do you? You, you don't typically have that when you go to work, do you? You don't find that when you turn on the news, do you? And, and, and though there are some kind folks out there, it is no strange occurrence to bump into somebody that's a little rude. Root. You know what I mean? And when you come home, there's not much better than coming home to a family and a home where there's peace. And it's just a place of refuge. It's free from the conflict and all the fighting. My, my parents used to say to me and my sister if we were arguing which we didn't do a lot but when we were I, and i use this same line on my kids now out there in the world people are going to treat you bad so we're not going to do that here we're a family and whether or not that was your family dynamic or not that's what all of us either had or wished we had and i went through all of that to get to this that's the same way God wants it to be in his family. God wants his family to be at peace. When the family gets together, God wants it to be a place of refuge and peace. And as we continue studying 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, God is showing us what it's supposed to look like in the church family and how we're to treat each other and how we're to re relate to each other and, and, and what it needs to be so that everything functions the way God designed this thing to function and we can work together to stand in these last days and be at peace with each other. Because Satan is going to be throwing everything that he can at God's family. And he wants us to be discouraged. He wants us to be defeated. And so God's saying to us out of this passage in 1 Thessalonians this morning, he's saying, church, here's how I want you to function in the midst of the spiritual nighttime that we're living in where Satan is running wild trying to stop everything God wants to do through us. And so like I mentioned a minute ago, God lays out for us the authority structure in the church and then the chain of command because if you get that out of whack, nothing is going to function properly. And then now let's begin looking at the rest of verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, where we, where we left off last time. Paul's continuing this thought of how we're to function within the church family. He says, and, and, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Of course, talking about pastors or ministers, which we studied last time. And then here it is. And be at peace among yourselves. This is what the relationship between all of us in this church family 
is supposed to look like. And as God's laying out how things are supposed to function within the spiritual family, he lays out that one thing that we were just talking about that every family wants. Peace. Just like we want that in our earthly family, God wants that in his spiritual family. So first, I want us to see, number one on your study sheet, the biblical command to be at peace. The biblical command to be at peace. We are a spiritual family. We're not going to be able to function properly as a family if we're not at peace. We, we will be a dysfunctional family if we're not at peace. Just like the physical family is dysfunctional when they're not at peace. And, and God has given this spiritual family a specific way that we're to function because we have specific things that we're to accomplish together. And we can't accomplish those things without peace. Because you see, like I mentioned, the moment we got saved, we became part of God's family. But there's still another metaphor or illustration that I left out that also sheds some light into why this thing of peace is so important. Because though we became a part of God's family, we also became a part of God's army. 1 Timothy chapter 1.18 says we're in a war. 2 Timothy 2.3 says, we are soldiers of Jesus Christ in that war. So we're brothers and sisters in Christ and we're a family, but the Bible also describes us as soldiers. Sometimes Paul uses the term fellow soldiers. And the reason that's relevant to us being at peace with each other is because as fellow soldiers in God's army, we've been called to function together to fight a war. Yeah, we're functioning together as a spiritual family that's commanded to be at peace among ourselves, and we're also functioning together as a spiritual army that's been commanded to be at peace among ourselves because there are things we've been called to accomplish together. And without peace, we're going to fall on our face. We're fighting that war against Satan and the powers of darkness because they're trying to keep us from the purposes that God has for our lives. And though God ha has, has different tasks and work that is specific to each of us and how he made us and how he gifted us, those tasks and that work always comes back to all of us working together to reach people with the gospel and establish them in the faith. That's the mission, right? That's the great commission. And there's only one vehicle in the time we're living in through which God has designed that that one mission would be accomplished. There is one vehicle that God has designed for the mission to be transported from here to the ends of the earth. And do you know what that vehicle is? That vehicle is the church. None of us are to be lone wolves out there, rogue, going for the gospel. No, we're to accomplish the mission through the one vehicle we've been given, the church. Ephesians 5.25 says, Christ loved the church and he gave his life for it. Acts 20.28 20, says, the church was purchased with Christ's blood. And when each of us got saved, we became a member of the, of the universal church or the global church as a whole, but God's plan was for each member of the universal or global church to join and serve in a local church. Obviously, this local church is Cali Harbin Baptist Church. And each of us in this local church family are brothers and sisters and fellow soldiers. And the purpose of this church existing, the purpose of our life, in the purpose of our lives, is to work together and function together to accomplish the mission together and reach people with the gospel establish them in the faith so that they can do the same with others and, and as i briefly mentioned earlier we're, we're of course also described as the as the body of christ as the body of christ each of us are individual members of the body arms legs hands and feet and we're functioning together just like the members of a physical body does and we're functioning together for a specific purpose and again that purpose is to reach people with the gospel, establish them in the faith so they can do the same with others. And I remind you of all that 
to say, Satan is at work and he is highly motivated to see a lack of peace within the people of the church because it's impossible to function together as a family and as a body and as fellow soldiers if we're fighting and squabbling with each other. How better to sideline a group of people, the group of people through which God designed for the world to be reached with the message of the gospel than to get them fighting amongst themselves and thinking about anything other than the mission. Wow, you talk about (laughs) self-destructing. You talk about losing focus on the battle at hand. Can you imagine two soldiers sitting in the foxhole trying to accomplish whatever mission they've been given, bullets whizzing by, and they never get out of the foxhole and pursue their mission because they're sitting in the foxhole arguing with each other. Do you see how problematic that is? You see, that's why it's so important, y'all, that we're at peace among ourselves. According to Acts 10.36, we're all to preach peace by Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, how are we going to preach something we don't even have? We don't even have peace in our lives. We're preaching peace. We've been commanded to live in peace with one another. In 2 Corinthians 13, 11, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. And he says this. Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace shall be with you. If the church is a group of believers that are, are perfect or, or holy and blameless, we could say. And if the church is of, of, of good comfort, in other words, if the church is a group of believers that despite whatever they're going through, they're, they're hopeful and they're, they're encouraged. They're not losing hope and they're not giving up. They're of good comfort. And if the church is, is a, of one mind and, and we believe the same things and, and we say the same things. And if the church is, is a place where believers live in peace with each other as opposed to arguing and fighting with each other, if that's what the church looks like, then that's a church that God is going to have his hand on. The God of love and peace will be with us, according to this verse. That's a church God can use to accomplish his purposes. Let me ask you, Based on that criteria, are you contributing positively or negatively to this place? It's so important that we get it right. There's a reason God commanded us to be at peace among ourselves. It isn't because he just doesn't like hearing the fighting. Even though I'm sure he doesn't as a parent, I can assure you. You don't like hearing it. It gets old. So it's important as a spiritual family, as a spiritual body, as spiritual fellow soldiers that we're functioning together in peace to accomplish the mission and we don't find ourselves fighting the wrong fights. Believers have this uncanny ability to spend their lives fighting the wrong fights. You see, there are fights worth having. Jeremiah 9.3, it, it teaches us to be valiant for the truth. We should fight for the truth. 2 Timothy 4.7 teaches us to fight the, the good fight. They aren't all good fights. But the good fight is the fight to finish your course and to keep the faith. Ephesians 6.12 teaches us, like we've already seen, that that we're in a fight with Satan and the powers of darkness. And all of those are fights that we've been called by God to have. But again, believers have this uncanny ability to fight all the wrong fights. And so instead of fighting for truth and instead of fighting to finish our course and, and fighting to keep the faith and instead of fighting the spiritual battle that we're in against Satan and the powers of darkness, we fight each other. And instead of all of our energy going towards the fights we've been called to have, we spend our time fighting the ones that we've been called to be at peace with. And God's saying, I designed the church to function like a family 
a body, and as fellow soldiers to fight for God together to accomplish his mission. And instead of doing that, you found another fight. And it's not a good one. There's a reason God commanded us to be at peace among ourselves. We're the vehicle through which God has designed to accomplish the mission. And it isn't just that God tells us to be at peace among ourselves. Do you realize he's actually a living example of it? Number two on your study sheet, the Lord's example of being at peace. The Lord's example of being at peace. So for good reason, God calls us to be at peace among ourselves. But it isn't just that he told us to be at peace. He actually exemplified it for us. And in fact, peace is so much a part of who God is, he uses that term to describe who he is through the names that he refers to himself as in the Bible. So we see God, God's example of peace, letter A, through his names. We see God's example of peace through his names. Hebrews 7 and verse 2, it refers to God as the, the king of peace. 2 Thessalonians 3.16 refers to God as the Lord of peace. Five different times in the Bible, God is referred to as the God of peace. Romans 15, 33, 16:20, Philippians 4, 9, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, Hebrews 13, 20, all use the name the God of peace. Romans 10, 15, and Ephesians 6, 15 refers to the gospel of peace. He's the king of peace. He's the Lord of peace and the God of peace who brought the gospel of peace. And the gospel of peace is what changed everything. The gospel, of course, is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you see, God does what he does because he is who he is. And so because he's the Lord of peace, the King of peace, the God of peace, he brought us the gospel of peace. And so we also see Jesus' example of peace, letter B, through his death. We see Jesus' example of peace through his death because, you see, before we got saved, y'all, we, we were not at peace. We were the furthest thing from at peace. In fact, the God of peace saved us by the gospel of peace from the wrath to come, according to 1 Thessalonians 1.10. We were saved from the wrath to come. John 3.36 says that the wrath of God abided on us prior to salvation it was as as if god's wrath was literally sitting down pressing upon us listen we were anything but at peace we were headed for the worst conflict imaginable which is god's wrath we were not at peace with god but you see because he's the god of peace he provided a way to be at peace with him, and he did that through the gospel of peace. Colossians 1.20 says that, that Jesus made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself. The blood of Jesus on the cross gave us access to peace with God, and through his blood we're, we're reconciled. To him, God reconciled us to Himself. Or, in other words, He He restored peace in His relationship, in our relationship with Him. Our sin had separated us from Him, and God's wrath was abiding on us. But by Jesus' blood, peace could be restored. And I lay all that out for you so that you'll understand something that's unbelievably significant. Because you know that peace that we have, that, that we now have with God, that, that we all hold so dear and that we celebrate in this room every single week. Do you realize that that peace came at an unbelievable cost? The cost was the life of Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus died to provide peace in our relationship with him. And I think what God wants to show us is sometimes being at peace in our relationships in here requires dying 
it requires sacrifice. You see, so often peace costs something. Sometimes the cost is that we accept the fact that someone did us wrong and they can't see that they did it. Sometimes the cost is treating someone with kindness that hasn't been kind to us. Sometimes the cost is laying down our life and laying down our rights just like Jesus did for us so that we could be at peace with him. Isn't that what salvation is supposed to be all about? Isn't that it? What We've been bought with a price according to 1 Corinthians 6.20. So since we've been bought with a price, our lives are not our own anymore. Our lives are God's. And God is saying to us, I want you to be at peace among yourselves, even if that means accepting wrong, even if that means sacrificing your rights, even if that means not getting the treatment you feel you deserve, because that's what I did for you on the cross in order to make peace with us. And this is about the time in the message where people's minds begin to justify why it is that your situation is so unique that this somehow doesn't apply. You don't understand what they did. You don't understand what they said. You don't understand how that made me feel. You don't understand how that made me hurt. You're right. I might not. But Jesus understands, and he lived every bit of it, and he went through every bit of that and much more so we could have peace in our relationship with him. And now he says, I want you to have peace with each other, and it's going to take sacrificing and dying to yourself. Why is suffering wrongfully so foreign to us? You ever think about that? Why is it so inconceivable that we would suffer wrongfully and still be at peace with the one who wronged us. Because that's exactly what Jesus did for us when we wronged him. He suffered wrongfully and took our punishment to bring us peace. Jesus suffered wrongfully to take away the wrath that was abiding on top of us and bring peace between us and God. And we're now to be at peace with each other even if it costs us something. Well, I thought the church was supposed to be a spiritual family where you're around a bunch of people that are easy to get along with and we're walking in the Spirit and we hang out together, we learn more truth about God together, and we hold hands and skip through life together. Listen, y'all, as has been said long before I was on this planet, the church is not a hotel for the saints, it's a hospital for the sick. And of course the goal is not for those that are in the church to stay sick and unhealthy. The goal is that they get well. But if this church is going to be what God has called us to be, then it isn't going to only be filled with spiritually mature people. It's going to be filled with people that have been newly saved. It's going to be filled with people that were previously backslidden people that are still immature and still have a lot of growing to do in order to be spiritually healthy. It's going to be a spiritual family, which includes babies in Christ, and those babies are still going to need some diapers changed. It's going to be a spiritual family, which includes spiritual young men who have become strong in the Lord, but like young men in the physical world, they tend to want to show off their newfound strength, and they don't always use their biblical knowledge in the right way. And hopefully it's a place with spiritual fathers too who are mature in the Lord and who are reproducing that maturity in others' lives. But you should find all of that in a church. And the church should be a place where those who are spiritual give room and space for those that aren't as spiritual to grow. Because if we think we're spiritual and we can't show grace to those that aren't as spiritual... Maybe we're not as spiritual as we think. I really believe the plight of churches like ours that understand that we're to dive into the deeper things of the Word of God is that somehow along the way of learning the cool, deep things, 
we forget about actually doing the basic things like showing each other grace and being at peace among ourselves listen peace comes at a price it always has from the beginning so jesus exemplifies peace through his names through his death and next i want us to see how he exemplifies peace letter c through his kingly order letter c through his kingly order this will make more sense to you in a couple minutes Look at James chapter 3, beginning in verse 13 with me, if you would. Please pay attention as I, as I read. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. So similar to what we just saw, if you are spiritually mature and wise and filled with knowledge then you show that through the way you live your life and through using that wisdom with meekness. Verse 14. But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. The wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. In other words, if the wisdom you are using or the way that you are, you're thinking about the circumstances of your life if that leads to your heart being bitter or filled with envy or filled with strife and conflict be honest and admit your heart ain't right with god because all of those things are worldly and literally of the devil verse 16 for where envying and strife is there is confusion in every evil work but the wisdom that's from above now notice the order. This is what I wanted you to see. The wisdom that's from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. You see, here's how it works. When we apply God's wisdom to our lives, there's an order to the results of that. And peace doesn't come first. What comes first? Purity comes first. God's wisdom isn't first peaceable, then pure. No, it, it's first pure, then peaceable. Purity has to come first because peace can't be had without purity. Look at verse 18 again. It says righteousness, not peace, is what bears the fruit. Righteousness does. It's righteousness that produces peace. That's the order. And so you know what that means? It means that if you cannot find a way to be at peace among your brothers and sisters, it's because your life lacks righteousness and purity. Because if you have that... Peace will follow. Applying God's wisdom produces purity first, then peace. Peace is a product of purity and righteousness. Now, does that mean there's never a tough conversation to be had in the family? No, of course not. It just means that even when that happens, we'll be able to arrive at peace if purity and righteousness are characteristic of the lives of the parties involved. And we see this same thing in the, in the kingly order that I was just mentioning and, and that we find in Hebrews 7.2. Check this out. This, this verse is referring to Melchizedek, who, who Melchizedek is a, is, a, is a type of Christ. There's a lot of debate about who he is. I think it's safe to say he's at the very least a type of Christ. And, and here's the order of the kingly reign as a type of Christ. Have you ever seen this? To whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all. First being by interpretation king of righteousness and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace. First, he's the king of righteousness and after that, he's the king of peace. And without getting into all the details of why all that is, God is laying out the same principle for us. First comes righteousness and purity, and then comes peace. And the reason we aren't at peace, if we're not, is because 
we're lacking righteousness and purity in our lives. So we see Jesus' example of peace by the order of his kingly reign. And then next, I want us to see Jesus' example of peace, letter D, through his love and forgiveness. Letter D, through his love and forgiveness. I, I mean, if we're not living at peace among ourselves, isn't this somewhere near the root of the whole thing? it's got to be near the root. The the people, when they have this problem where they can't be at peace among themselves, it's ultimately going to come back to lacking love and and forgiveness. And of course, Jesus' example to us is one that has poured out his love and forgiveness to us beyond measure. Romans 5, 8 says, Jesus commended his love toward us while we were yet sinners a couple verses later in romans 5 10 it teaches us that we were reconciled to god while we were enemies that's how we've been treated so then in john 15 12 jesus says okay now i want you to love the same way you've been loved i want you to love others like i loved you I loved you and died for you while you, were, while you were an enemy. So then it should come as no surprise that in Luke chapter 6 and verse 27, Jesus says, love your enemies, do good to them which hate you. If we're to love our enemies, how much more our brothers and sisters in Christ? A few verses later in Luke 6, 35, Jesus says, But love your enemies and do good and lend hoping for nothing and your reward shall be great and ye shall be the children of the highest. For he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. (laughs) You see, when God calls us to be at peace among ourselves, it's it's easy to say, all right, right, fine, I, I know how to do that. I just won't talk to him and I just won't look at him. And Jesus is saying, no, here's how you even treat your enemies. You do good to them, and you're kind to them, just like Jesus was to you when you were his enemy. Because just like Romans 12, 21 teaches us, we're not to be overcome of evil, but we're to overcome evil with good. That's how Jesus loves us, and that's how we're to love. But he also forgave us. Love and forgiveness go hand in hand. According to Ephesians 1, 7, we've all been offered forgiveness through the blood of Jesus on the cross. And, and so now that we've been forgiven, we're to forgive like we've been forgiven. Yeah. Ephesians four thirty two says, and be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. How? Even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Colossians 3.13 says, here's how you handle it if you have a quarrel against someone or if someone wrongs you. Are you ready? Here's how you handle it. Forbearing one another and forgiving one another if any man have a quarrel against any. Even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. You see, that's how we're to handle the problems that we have with each other. Forgive them. Just like Christ forgave you. You remember all that he's graciously forgiven you of? I I, I think sometimes the reason we feel like we've been wronged in some sort of horrific way where there could just never be peace is because we forget the horrific way that we've wronged God and yet he forgave us. Listen, don't ever lose sight of the offenses that you've committed against the sinless one. No, I don't mean live in guilt of your past after you've been forgiven for the rest of your life, no. But I do mean don't lose sight of how much you've been forgiven of because when you lose sight of that, you lose sight of how you've been called to forgive. So we've seen a a variety of ways now that Jesus has not just called us to be at peace with each other, but he's exemplified it with his life in a variety of ways. He he exemplified peace to us through his names, through his death, his relationship with 
the Father, his kingly order in, 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 in his, his love and forgiveness. And now I want us to see, number three, the extreme gravity of peace. The extreme gravity and importance of peace. You know, of course, there's what we would call having peace of mind. But the peace we've been talking about this morning is peace with others or, or peace among ourselves due to our passage in 1 Thessalonians 5. And, and being at peace is something that's so important to God. So I want us to look at exactly how serious God takes it. It, it has so much gravity and importance that God tells us, letter A, that we're to seek it. We're to seek after it. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 11 is where we find this. It, and it says, Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. We're to seek and ensue it. Or in other words, we're to, we're to go after it. We're to desire it. You see, we're going to have to work for it. And you know what? Sometimes... If you're truly seeking peace, sometimes the best thing to do is to hold your peace. You know what I mean? In, in, in that the line that the ministers sometimes use at the end of weddings, speak now or forever, hold your peace. It, if you're watching your if you're watching your favorite rom com. This is the part where the, the good girl is a, you know, about to marry the bad guy. And the good guy that you wish she'd married took the job out of state. and He's supposed to be getting on a flight to move away. You thought that's where he was, and he busts in the door. The minister says, speak now or forever hold your peace. Right as the door opens, I have something to say. From the moment I saw you, I've been in my hands. <laughs> but in all seriousness, sometimes if, if you can approach it the right way, it makes sense for us to hash it out. And other times, the best way to keep the peace is to hold your peace. But we have to seek after peace. And also, let her be, we're, we're to endeavor for it. We're to endeavor for it ephesians 4 3 says endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace is something we've got to endeavor to keep and, and certainly to endeavor is similar to seek like we just looked at so it's being diligent to labor and to work towards peace but this word endeavor is also connected to speed it's to use speed as you labor to keep the unity and the peace. In other words, don't sit around and let it keep festering. Hurry up and do whatever needs to be done in order to keep the peace. No, not hurry up and get it off your chest while you're fuming mad. Not that. No, hurry up and do whatever needs to be done to keep the peace. So peace is so important in God's eyes that we're to seek it endeavor to keep it and then next let her see we're to let it rule we're to we're to let it rule that's exactly what colossians 3:15 teaches us it, it says let the peace of god rule in your hearts to the which also ye are called in one body and be ye thankful and, and here's here's something that we need to understand though peace is something we seek and it's something that we endeavor for. It's not something that we create. The peace that we need to have among ourselves comes from God and is only available from God. That's why this verse says to, look at the word, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. God's peace is there already. We have access to it, but we've got to let it rule. See, when we're, when we're in our feels and we're, we're letting our emotions run away with us, we don't want to let it rule. We want our anger and frustration to rule. And when the peace of God is ruling in our hearts, then the peace of God does what ruling does. It calls the shots. 
it rules or it governs. And so when all the emotions and the frustrations come that lead to conflict and not peace, we let the peace of God rule or govern those emotions and those frustrations. Because then regardless of how mad we are or upset we are, peace rules and it governs those emotions and you deal with them in a manner in which promotes peace with others. And if you've been listening to all of this this morning and, and you're thinking, it's just hard to believe that it, it could be possible to live that way with others, especially after the way that they've treated me. Well, if it seems hard to understand how that could be possible, and it's hard to get your mind wrapped around how you can live at peace with certain others, then believe it or not, the thoughts you're having aren't actually too far off track. Because Philippians chapter 4 and verse 7 says that the peace of God passes all understanding. You see, the peace that God is able to give you as you, as you follow the example that Jesus showed us and you, you live a pure and righteous life and so peace follows and, and as we seek peace and endeavor to keep the peace and we let peace rule, the peace that comes out of that is a peace that comes from God and that peace is so incredible and so amazing that it passes all understanding. It's like we almost can't even comprehend the, the whole thing. And since we can't understand it, it sure does make it challenging for me to sit here and try to use words to describe something that can't be understood. It's beyond what can be comprehended, and it's beyond explanation, and it passes all understanding because it is supernatural. The peace that comes from God is a supernatural peace that defies logic. We have access to that. That's how two people who have such a rough past in their relationship with each other can be at peace with one another. But we have to seek it, endeavor to keep it, and let it rule. Otherwise, our anger or our pride or some other manifestation of our flesh is going to rule and there will be conflict, not peace. Man, God has a lot to say about this thing of being at peace with each other. There's a, there's a lot of meat on the bone. There's a lot to unpack. But God says so much about it because it's so important that we don't miss it. Listen, we're a spiritual family, y'all. We are a church family. God designed for this spiritual church family to function together and to be at peace among ourselves because the church is the vehicle through which God designed to reach the world with the message of his love and peace. There is no other vehicle, it's just the church. So how can we go out into the world and share the gospel of peace if we don't have peace among ourselves? What if we got ourselves so busy involving ourselves in the mission? What if we were so busy evangelizing and sharing our faith and, and we were so busy building, focusing on building each other up in the faith, we were so busy discipling people that we didn't even have time to fight amongst each other. When you're in the foxhole with your fellow soldiers to accomplish a mission, you don't have time and energy for any of the nonsense. There's something else going on that's too important to get sidetracked from. What if we were so focused on what God designed the church family to accomplish together that we didn't have time, desire, or energy to argue with each other? We're to be at peace among ourselves. Are you willing to obey that command and follow Jesus' example as you seek and endeavor to let peace rule in your life? Or are you going to circle back to the same old justifications? Doesn't mean you like everything that everybody says or everything that everybody does. It means you find peace with them even if it costs you something. God's given us access to a peace that passes all understanding, but he won't force it upon us. 
what kind of body are we going to be? Father, I, I thank you for this group, and I thank you for your call to peace, and I thank you for the way that you showed us that peace and grace. God, may all of our lives, may my life, I am a fellow struggler standing before you, standing in front of you. I need to apply these things to my life, God. I pray we all would. God, would you just, would you prick our hearts this morning? Would you, would, would we come before you with soft hearts every week in this room saying to you, the answer is yes before I even hear it. So now that we have heard it, God, I, I'm praying that the answer would be yes now to do whatever needs to be done, to deal, to take care of business with you, with others, whatever that it is, God, I pray, God, that this would be a place, this would be a body and a family that we're aligned with fellow soldiers to accomplish the mission, what we've been called to do, God, and this would be a place, not with conflict, God, but a place that you designed it to be and that you gave your life so that it would be a place of peace. I love you, Jesus. Amen.